All right, guys. Thanks for listening. Today, joining us is Bryce Lewis. So first off, Bryce, thanks so much for jumping on the call. Uh, really excited to have this conversation and see you know, some of your opinions on the psychological preparation that you take for competition. Why don't you start out by introducing yourself and letting listeners know a little bit about your background and kind of what you've been involved in. Sure. Daniel, thanks for having me. Um, I'm a powerlifting athlete and strength coach. I started a company called The Strength Athlete in 2013. Uh, we've been helping people get stronger ever since. So we work with uh, athletes from beginner through kind of a world-class uh, athletes um, in that entire range. And, uh, and really, we just kind of want to educate, um, research, put out good information, and uh, do, the, do the good work of exercise science and, and the like. So um, as an athlete, I compete in the 105 kilo weight class. Um, I won nationals this last year and have won three times and was supposed to head to worlds, but that's all kind of canceled with COVID and, and everything like that. So it's back to the drawing board and uh, putting in some more work. A lot of my kind of armchair interests are in the intersections in between powerlifting and other things. So other things being psychology, philosophy, uh, you know, kind of like I have a background in, in, in philosophy and that kind of rears its head in some of the discussions that I really enjoy having. So, um, those are kind of some of my, my casual interests. Awesome. Yeah. And you can sort of tell that when, uh, <laughs> every time I'm either reading a post or listening to something, it tends to be fairly well thought out and a lot of the details are you know teased out in a pretty interesting way so that was one of the reasons why I'm so excited to have you on so again this is one of those situations where I'm always interested in reading the research like that's kind of what I spend most of my day doing but I find myself being pulled a lot more especially over the last year towards athletes and their individual experience and hearing a lot more about you know, what they've done and then seeing the overlap between what the research says and then kind of their own personal experience and what they found to be really helpful. And, and I've always been interested in that. And so from your experience, what are some of the psychological hurdles that you've had to go through, uh, you know, throughout your competitive career in order to get to where you are and, and develop yourself as an athlete? Yeah, good question. Um, I think one of the bigger things that I've, had to deal with well there there's kind of two primary things one is um just like anxiety about a specific weight or um you know just kind of feeling like i'm not ready or i'm i'm you know just nervous about whether or not i'm going to be able to lift a certain weight and you know the numbers can all tell you yeah your estimated one rep maxes are are there you're good for it and yet you know some part of your brain can still be a naysayer or you know just worrying too much about technique and I think it's so easy for a lot of athletes to just miss the mark when it comes to just freeing their mind, just being able to to lift and, you know, thinking about all the what ifs about something that hasn't even happened yet. So that's kind of one big thing that I've dealt with. And another is comparison. Um, unlike many other sports like football or baseball or basketball or, or you know, even other individual sports, the nature of powerlifting is is so easy to compare. You know, you can look at your number and you can know, in an instant, whether you're better or worse than another athlete. And, you know, you, you combine that with the fact that now you have such access to seeing how good other athletes are with social media, you know, like 
everyone's putting out the training on a nearly daily basis and highlighting their best and you just kind of get to see it. It's, it's right in front of you. And some people say, Oh, wow, that's really motivating. And other people say, um, well, why aren't I doing that? You know, it's kind of a struggle between both of these two, like using it as a, a motivating source and using it as a, a point of kind of uh, self-criticism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's, that's a really good point. And that's something that I think everyone is going to struggle with, especially those, uh, the two that you talked about, right? About anxiety, whether it's performance or really anything. And then also the comparison aspect. Um, so how did you overcome that? Let's, I guess let's start with, how did you overcome anxiety about the weights? Cause that's something that I know a lot of people really struggle with, especially if you have a program where let's say next week, you know, you know that you have a really heavy set of squats or a really crazy AMRAP or something along those lines and you have time to think about it. Sometimes people can use that and really amp themselves up, but then other times that same individual might just be building anxiety and and stress over that single situation. So how do you overcome the anxiety about lifting heavy weights or approaching a really important competition or workout? There's this, um, there's this whole background of factors that I think lead into whether you, whether you see uh, a situation ahead of you as uh, something to approach or something to avoid, you know, as, as something you look forward to or something you fear. And that kind of large set of background factors includes like, what was your recent successes? You know, like you're supposed to do an AMRAP. Uh, how did things go last week? Or how did things go the last time you did an AMRAP? And those kind of past experiences form strong memories that might make you think that you're either going to be successful or not successful this time around. So um, one of the ways you can, you can help get over anxiety is by continuously having positive experiences. So, you know, the more positive experiences in training that you can kind of stack on top of each other, the less uh, fear or, or anything like that uh, you might ever experience. So, you know, if you spend your entire life around crocodiles and like no one you ever know has ever gotten bitten by a crocodile, you've never seen anyone bitten by a crocodile. Um, you've never seen them acting dangerously. You're not going to think they're a dangerous creature and you're just going to be your normal self. But like every time you start to see, you know, someone getting mauled by a crocodile, I don't, I don't know where the hell this example came from, but we're talking about crocodiles now. And, um, what I'm saying is, is past experiences shade your, your thoughts and beliefs about future experiences. And so, um, failure is, is especially relevant in powerlifting. So we want to avoid, uh, experiences of failure underperformance or things like that, especially on a regular basis. Um, things like coaches and, and expectations, either self expectations or expectations that coaches may put on athletes can influence, kind of future beliefs. So whether or not you have this overbearing coach who might be expecting certain performances or are they encouraging or or not encouraging, um, you know, what are your own beliefs for yourself? Why are you doing this sport? You know, do you want to lift this weight to prove your, your roommate wrong or, or to beat them? Or is this just for your yourself and kind of internal mastery? All these kind of background things can, can shade how you think about that AMRAP coming up. I think that a lot of the times that's not necessarily given enough credit. It's usually this 
obsessive focus on your current emotional state. And for me, like when I was boxing, I would get same thing, these like panic attacks and a lot of anxiety. And so it got so bad to the point where I would literally have to weigh in and then go to sleep. And then mm -hmm. I would just have my sister wake me up. And this is not even an, an exaggeration. About five minutes before the fight, I would do some jumping jacks and I'd go out and fight cold. Because if I didn't do that, I would just, I don't know, I would completely destroy my, my mindset. Yeah. Funny, because when I'm fighting, I'm not thinking about anything. I'm not thinking if they're winning. I'm not thinking anything. I'm just going in there to win. But it's all that time beforehand where you're talking to yourself. And it's funny because one of the things that I tell my athletes is like, you know, I, I oftentimes will ask them, have you ever gone into a weight or gone into a lift really not believing in yourself? And they're like, yes. And I'm like, did you lift the weight? And they're like, yes. And I'm like, okay, now conversely, have you ever gone in being so confident that you're going to crush it and then it crushes you and you miss it? And they're like, yes. And I'm like, okay, so does your, do your headspace really matter? Like, I, I think that it does, but I don't think it's the, the determining factor, I guess is what I'm saying. And so yeah. it's really yeah. interesting how all of those things you were talking about, even like social identity, how your coach's expectation, your expectations, and then just also your previous performance shades the, uh, the experience that you're going to have. So how do you go about structuring all those wins then, you know, from, from a training perspective? I think when an athlete does something really well in training, you know, we want to celebrate it. We want to make sure that it feels like a positive experience and like a very strong memory for them. And, you know, just kind of have them be able to call back on this uh, at, at future sets. And if you do that enough times, um, whatever kind of anxiety they had, maybe around a certain weight starts to disappear a little bit more, whether it's, uh, you know, around a specific number or a specific upcoming test. There's a lot you can do with kind of reframing um, things. So let's pretend uh, the athlete's doing a, a 1RM test coming up, you know. Um, rather than talking about maxing out or talking about specific numbers, we're going to just talk about making the most of the day. You know, that, that way, all we're doing is maximizing potential, no matter what the weight ends up being. And that, I think, reduces the threat level of what the athlete might be expecting going into uh, a max test right or you know if it's a competition rather than focusing on winning or other athletes we bring the focus back to the self and back to the athlete and just making one lift so all we're worried about before your opener is making your opener after that all we're worried about is the second attempt and really it's very self-referenced and kind of narrowing the focus there um number one i mean we can't even control what other athletes are doing so just excuse me, bringing the focus back to exactly what we can control, I think helps a lot as well. That's super interesting because I know there's a lot of people who have conflicting opinions on competition with regards to should you have more of an intrinsic focus or should you also be aware of what else is going on? And personally, I'd say that I align a little bit more with you. I think that if you just focus on doing your best and you happen to win, great. But that's, I think that you have a higher likelihood of winning if you do your best. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah you certainly and, do. And so like, it, it seems to me a little counterproductive to go in there and try and win when that's not necessarily taking your actual ability into, into account, right? Like, I mean, I guess to put that into perspective, how many times have you 
seen someone put a number on the bar for their third attempt because that's going to be the winning number but it's way beyond their ability you know and then they miss it and they're like oh damn i missed it. i almost had it and it's like mm, no you didn't you know yeah whereas yeah i don't know and and i also think that from a cumulative standpoint you know if you can look back and say hey you know what over the last 10 meets i've only missed five lifts you know and i pr'd on every single one and you know, I think that gives you quite a bit of confidence in terms of when you're approaching the next daunting weight, as opposed to always trying to be focused on the outcome as opposed, as opposed to be like process focused or process oriented. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, clout, clout chasing on Instagram is, is, uh, <laughs> alive and well right now. Yeah, no, definitely. So, so I'd love to hear more about your process of that because I mean, in competition, you have this really unique balance between needing to be aware of what the other athletes are putting up especially if it's for a very important competition you know this is assuming that you are competing at a high level you know nationals and above something like that and you are jockeying for you know that podium position sometimes you do have to be strategic so how do you balance that with maintaining that sort of internal focus to not throw yourself off and, and make sure that you actually do put up the best performance on the platform while still being competitive so there's a few pieces I think are, are helpful here. Uh, one is be focused on yourself until let's say second deadlift. And then you can kind of start looking at what our other athletes are doing because until there's a subtotal, there's just far too much noise and far too much variability for you to be able to make reliable decisions. You know, like you don't have to beat someone on the squat to beat them on the total uh, right. or the bench press. And so um, just kind of keep that focus on yourself until you you kind of start to see where placing is shaking out then you can start making decisions about you know what do i think my top end is uh and and what do i think uh this other person's top end is and and you know how can i make that jump to maybe overtake them or make them take something they they shouldn't be taking and, and make them miss those are things that a good coach can kind of help an athlete do so um one piece is like let's stay self-referenced until deadlifts and another piece is get someone in your corner, um, a coach to kind of uh, work with you on game day who really knows what they're doing and, and are able to put in the right number and talk to the athlete in such a way that the athlete doesn't experience the stress. You know, you just want the coach to be able to kind of absorb all of that and almost shield the athlete from, from the outside world a little bit. Mm -hmm. No, that makes a lot of sense. But I mean, that's so, not to say that like being an athlete on the day of competition is just kind of calm, collected, like a training day. Like it's, it's chaos. And, you know, kind of thinking back to uh, nationals and, and worlds and some of these wonderful events I've been able to be a part of, like I'm a wreck on, on quite a lot of those. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, like you can't get rid of game day anxiety. I think what you can learn to do and, and, and game day anxiety isn't a bad thing. Um, it's important to remember that you should feel excited and nervous about something you want to do well in. Uh, so, you know, if you're, if you're experiencing that, like that's, it's not a bad thing. All you want to do is be able to reframe it and use it as a tool for your advantage going forward. No, absolutely. And you said a couple of really interesting things there. The first one that I got was, um, I mean, you didn't say it directly, but it was somewhat insinuated, which was the coach athlete relationship, right? Like 
the coach and the athlete really need to be solid, really need to trust each other because there's so much riding on this or there potentially can be so much riding on this, even if it's not like objective, it's, it's subjective, right? It's really important to the lifter. It's really important to their goals and what they want to accomplish long-term. And they need to have faith in someone that, that who they're listening to really has their best interest in mind. They're going to take care of them. They know what they're doing. They've, they've got a high degree of competency and experience. And that's something that's really, really important that sometimes I don't think isn't is appreciated as much as it should be. And the second mm-hmm. thing that you mentioned, and I'll, I'll get you to expand on these things in a moment, but the second thing was being nervous, but it's almost like this cyclical process where you get nervous and then you get nervous about the fact that you're nervous and then that makes you more nervous, you know? And so you end up being afraid that you're afraid, right? So yeah. can you touch on coach athlete relationships and how to build a really strong relationship with your athlete or with your coach? Sure. Um, there's kind of a lot of subcomponents to that, but I mean, the main idea is it's a little bit about trust, you know, so you want, um, you want there to be mutual trust and, uh, just kind of an ease of communication and to not just kind of have, uh, doubts or things unsaid or anything like that kind of hiding in the back. You want the athlete to feel supported and be able to ask questions and express fears and, and, you know, express vulnerabilities and at the same time being able to trust kind of coaching decisions. So I think having this athlete centric approach of individualization and, you know, just kind of the right language, like even if you as an athlete uh, like to be slapped on your back before you go out, you know, for a big deadlift, if, if that's the kind of thing that's going to make your athlete just crumble inside, like, why would we do that? You know, so we want to ask our athlete, what do they need in order to be their best self? You know, like, if all you want me to do is is hold your headphones when you go out and, you know, just put the right weight on the bar. Well, perfect. I'm going to do that because that's what it takes to to make you succeed. Or, you know, if you want me to rub your ears super hard before you go out, well, that's, that's what I'm going to do too. So as a coach, you want to be a little bit of a chameleon and being able to kind of mold yourself to the situation of, of what the athlete specifically needs. And, I think the worst thing we can do is spring anything new on an athlete the day of a competition. So have conversations before about, uh, you know, Hey, uh, Johnny, what do you think you need uh, on the day of competition? Or what do you, what are the things that you like to hear? Or, uh, you know, are you, are you a nervous lifter? Are you a calm lifter? Are you aggressive? Kind of how, how can I best help you be your best self? So taking care of some of this stuff in advance, also helps reduce like athlete anxiety the day of competition. So anytime we can reduce uncertainty, uh, we're going to be doing the athlete a favor. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And there's a huge piece of awareness that goes into that. You know, you can't, as an athlete or a coach, I mean, you can't just walk in there and, you know, just purely be focused on your lifting for that day. Like there has to be a big piece that's paying attention to, like you said, the arousal curve, like, are you the kind of lifter that needs to get super psyched up? Are you the kind of lifter that, you know, needs someone to actually calm you down because you're too amped up all the time? Um, You know, if you miss a lift, like, does it really get into your head? You need someone being there to, to give you positive reinforcement or are you able to slough it off and, you know, act like it's not a big deal. So there's a huge awareness piece that uh, that's definitely there um, as well. And, and so, how do you go about bringing awareness into your training? Like that level of intentionality where you can kind of maximize or sort of capitalize on that on game day, because like you were saying, you know, you don't want to try anything new on the meet day. 
there's a really strong pull sometimes to be like, oh, you know, I heard about this new warm up, or I'm really going to warm up my shoulders and make sure they're 100%, or I'm going to try this new foam rolling or cupping technique, or, and you start to deviate from what you're used to, right? And, and that can be kind of appealing because you want to maximize your, your potential for that day. But um, how do you go about actually bringing awareness into your training sessions, into your, into your competitions, so that you start to know yourself as an athlete a lot better? I try not to have athletes introduce anything new in the competition. You know, like maybe, maybe if the athlete wants some ammonia uh, in competition and they really only do it for like super heavy top sets, then, then great. Let's, let's do that. But like outside of that, the fewer things we can change on the day of the competition, I think the more predictable the athlete's performance is going to be. And if we've done our job in training, we're going to get some pretty great results on the platform. That said, like the training space is, is really our playground to be able to test new ideas and stuff like that. And, and I think very few things are, are off the limits, you know, so you may want to try like a new song or you may want to try like, um, you know, a different arousal level. Maybe if you're a calm lifter, like, you know, really try amping yourself up and, and see like, like, what does that feel like? Do I like that? Do I hate that? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's, that's information. And I think all we're looking for is kind of good information that helps us make decisions. So same thing with kind of um, the thoughts that you think about while you're lifting, you know, what are the cues that you need to be able to like perfectly squat, perfectly bench, perfectly deadlift. Mm-hmm. Um, those things are hard one. You know, if you find something like you want to grab hold of it, remember it, write it down. Um, I think a good set of notes uh, for the athlete during the training process is really important. And then just kind of being mindful. Like don't just go through the motions when you're training. Um, let's, let's, put some intention into this thing, you know, take some video of your sets and, and you don't have to take video of every set. And, and likely the more you progress as an athlete, the less kind of broad changes uh, will happen, but there'll be small things like, Oh, this is exactly where my hips need to be at the bottom of the squat. And, you know, it might not even be a conscious thing of like oh, knees here and, and hips here, but maybe just like a, a feeling of, of what it's like to squat or, Oh, this is where I like my eyes to be looking uh, when I'm benching, like kind of little small things like that. And training is, is our playground for finding out exactly what are those pieces for your optimal performance. Is there a difference that in your mind between the psychological states that you're in entering a, a training session versus entering a competition? Obviously there's a heightened level of arousal and a couple other things there, but in terms of how you want to approach these things, not really. Um, I, I want those two to be pretty darn close. You know, I, it, they're both self-reference. You know, I kind of want to just have me in the bar, um, just kind of be in tune with each other. Uh, music for me, at least, is a pretty big part of, of my high performance. So if I keep the music on right before the squat or even during the squat and training, then that kind of just helps eliminate some of that background noise and just helps me focus on like the effort uh, of the lift. But yeah, I mean, truly I think competition is best when it matches training uh, as long as like what you do in training is repeatable uh, in, in a way that gets you good performances. So yeah, it's, it's, um, it's interesting. Like you, you want to lift really hard in training. And then if you do that, then you can just kind of match that in competition. I'd be interested to get your perspective because in training, you're not always going to be going to max effort. You're not always going to be, you know, really digging deep and going to those places where it's, you know, 
can be sort of uncharted territory, especially if you're hitting a PR or something like that, right? When the competition does require you to really go into that deep water where, you know, in some cases, maybe you're hitting like a 15, 20 kilo PR on, on the squat or the bench press, you know, that's a pretty big jump from anything you've previously done. So how do you go about training yourself to go to those places just on cue when in training, it doesn't necessarily replicate exactly what you're doing in competition. Like, do you have any strategies or, you know, is there some overlap that maybe, you know, the listeners aren't aware of? There's a, there's a few roads that you can, you can use to get yourself there. Uh, One is just like a cognitive road, you know, it's, it's, so you can have a conversation with the athlete or the athlete can be talking to themselves and, and look at their training and see, okay, well, you know, the last four weeks, my estimated one or maxes have all told me this load is something I can do. My coach has told me this load is something I can do. And, and therefore, even if I don't believe it, the data is right here in front of me. So I'm going to go out and I'm going to treat it like any other lift. Um, and another approach is to just kind of rely on the ritual. So, you know, your ritual of setup for squat should be something that's near identical on a rep to rep basis or on a set to set basis, let's say. Now you put your hands on the bar, they're in the right distance, you go under the bar, you've got your specific unrack, your specific walkout, your specific breathing, and all those kind of things just supposedly put you in the same position every single set. And it's no different, you know, whether we're talking 80% or 105%, you know, we, we really want that process to be the same. So kind of relying on ritual, regardless of the load on the bar, um, just helps for you to kind of focus on on what's important. And other than that, it's it's really just effort, you know, and, and basically avoiding fear. Um, I think fear and doubt while you're under the bar is probably the most damaging thing to being able to perform well. And so whatever you can do to mitigate that is is really, really important. Is there anything else that you like to do if on game day, you come in and you have a little bit of doubt kind of lingering in the back of your head. Is there anything that you do just in the moment to, to get back to focus? Do you have a meditation strategy? Do you talk to someone? Do you listen to music? What does that look like for you? The last few competitions, um, at some point on my way to the competition, I will do some writing to myself. So I'll pull out uh, a notes pad on my phone and I'll just kind of start writing like basically like super cheesy, but like the most positive encouraging language to myself that I can think of, you know, and I'll listen to music while I'm doing this. And, you know, it's, it's stuff about my journey, what, what it's taken for me to get to this point, what I'm capable of, you know, just kind of like being my own hype man to like the nth degree, you know? Yeah. (laughs) And it it feels really good in the moment to do that. Um, But also it's, it's just, it's a living document that you can refer to while you're in the middle of competition. So last two competitions I've had that open on my phone and uh, I'm just in the warm-up room with my headphones on and, and I'm just kind of looking at this you know and and sometimes we are uh, crazy apes trying to to squat you know barbells on our back and simply the the act of kind of looking at this language on a regular basis just gives us some of that reassurance that we need to to perform well I know that you're you're also a bit of a nerd as well and so You've done a fair bit of reading on on some of these subjects. So is there a particular area of, of research that you found to be extremely helpful in your own understanding of the process that you go through mentally and, and how to actually bolster up that game? 
Yeah, there there are a few things. So I think the first really big topic that I looked at, at was like from from the psychology side of lifting was on motivation and just kind of understanding self-determination theory. So um, this kind of helped me understand myself better and the difference between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. But self-determination theory basically says like, hey, we're motivated internally through kind of three avenues. One is uh, autonomy. So like having the freedom to uh, to do certain actions rather than them being forced on us. Another is relatedness. So the degree to which we can kind of talk about and share our experiences with something with other people. And another one is competence, the degree to which we feel like we can really succeed and, and actually do well in any specific thing. So kind of these three pillars underneath internal motivation and anytime one of those tends to decrease, um, it's, uh, it's, it's a lot harder for us to, to maintain that motivation. It's a lot easier to, to understand why athletes lose some of that sense of motivation. So as a problem solving tool, that was really, really helpful in kind of understanding, Oh, you're not motivated because, uh, this piece is missing. Thankfully it hasn't usually been for autonomy because, I try to be a good coach on that side of things, but oftentimes competence decreases, you know, if an athlete is injured and not able to train the way they normally do. Okay. Well, obviously motivation is going to take a hit or, Oh, we're going through COVID right now and, and athletes aren't posting their training as much because they don't have access to gyms. So relatedness goes down and it's just, it's this framework that really helped me understand things. So that's been one thing. And then after that, I got into looking at um, burnout a little bit. I looked into coach athlete relationships and lately it's been a mental toughness as well. And just kind of understanding um, what are some of the aspects of, of mental toughness. So I'd love to hear some of your, your positions on that because I just chatted the other day with uh, Dr. Pat Davidson. I'm not sure if you know who he is. The name rings a bell. Yeah. So he, he's a way smarter dude than I am. So I find that sometimes when he's talking, I just go cross-eyed. Can't really understand <laughs> half the crap he's saying. Um, but we were talking about uh, willpower and I guess grit is, is sometimes how it's referred to in the literature uh, and the genetic components to that. And mm -hmm. that was just super interesting. And, uh, you know, obviously there's, there is always going to be a relationship between nurture versus nature, right? Where, where there is a level of, like you were saying earlier, autonomy that we have over, you know, the development of, I guess, mental toughness. And so how do you approach that? Uh, in your own training and with your own athletes? It's really on a, a problem and solution basis. So I think there are some aspects of mental toughness that are teachable. You know, like I, I get really peeved when you used to hear this a lot more than you do now, but like, you know, that athlete either has it or they don't, you know what I mean? And, and that, that doesn't serve us as coaches working with someone who is paying us to help make them better rather than just kind of like uh, getting a batch of athletes and, and trying to choose between them like this, this turn over the past 50 or so years has been toward uh, athlete centric and more and more individualized approaches rather than kind of developing like a, this, this national team in the way that like early Russians and uh, early Chinese teams did. It's really just about getting the most out of any specific athlete and that's been probably the most useful turn for us, at least as far as sport training is concerned. 
So like, you know, it's, it's not that athletes either have it or they don't. It's, it's meeting an athlete where they're at and then figuring out what they need to get to the next level. So while there are those components to genetics that are kind of prevalent across all aspects of athletic development, whether we're talking about how fast your squat's going to go up or, you know, are you going to be one of those athletes who leans over more in the squat? Because, hey, you know, your, your mom and dad had long femurs and now you do too. Um, those are the things that are just problems for us to solve. So kind of treating things as just challenges to overcome is really important. So back to mental toughness, a lot of that stuff is on a problem solution basis. So an athlete says that they're seeing things as, um, you know, kind of challenges to avoid, you know, they, they see risks as things to avoid rather than to embrace or they feel like they don't have control over certain aspects of their life. And all those are ways for us to kind of reframe things for them and say, you know, look, just because, you know, you don't have access to uh, this meal prep plan that one of your competitors does, we just kind of have to view this as a challenge to overcome. And, and you're gonna have to get really good at cooking, my friend. And, and you know, like, everyone goes through things like that. Um, no matter whether you're the most privileged genetic athlete that exists, or, or whether you kind of, you know, started from started from the bottom and had to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Um, but I mean, by the research on mental toughness, they were kind of like, the original research was done on kind of interview style of looking at what do Olympic athletes think mental toughness is. So you kind of get a consensus from athletes across multiple different sports and their coaches and, uh, you know, high level um, sports psychologists and combine those into something that feels relatively cohesive. So there's kind of 12 things uh, in rank in order of the things that they most thought were components of mental toughness toward the things that were least components. And like the high components were having like this unshakable self-belief, um, being able to bounce back from setbacks quicker than other athletes, um, feeling like you have unique qualities that make you better than your opponents, having this uh, insatiable desire and kind of motivation to, to succeed. So each of these are just doors to a conversation with the athlete, you know, like, mm -hmm. Hey, why are you doing this whole powerlifting thing? You know, like, what do you want to get out of this? Um, how do you feel about perfectionism? Like, how do you approach your craft? And this isn't the same as like, you know, programming, you know, three sets of five for an athlete and, and then just getting a certain adaptation. You can't like program your way through, increases to mental toughness, but you can have conversations, you know, like that's our avenue into some of this stuff. And, and, you know, if we really care about this, it's, it's through conversation that we get through to an athlete. That's really interesting because, um, I think whenever you look back in sports history, there's, there's no shortage of examples where indoctrination ended up being really, really helpful <laughs> for the success of an athlete. <laughs> like you look at, uh, so Mike Tyson is, is a huge, huge idol of mine. Um, he's someone I've looked up to for a long, long time. And I mean, if you're familiar with his story, you know that he was taken in when he was very, very young. And Customato, his coach, who's this very famous boxing coach at the time, um, literally just started indoctrinating him, saying that you're the greatest of all time. Like, you, you'll be unstoppable. You're going to be the youngest world champion. You're the greatest fighter of all time. Like, literally, like, whispering this into his ear as he's sleeping all day, every day. He forced him to live with him. And, like, he'd make him watch videos. And he'd just keep telling this kid that and, and whether or not it was true he started believing it was true and I mean everyone in the world knows who Mike Tyson is so I think it worked out pretty well if there is a genetic ceiling that someone has or a certain limit to the level of you know mental toughness that they might have I don't necessarily think it's beneficial to 
to know what that is, but I, I do think it's beneficial to assume that it's much higher than it actually is, right? So it's almost like, you know, behaving as if you have control will at the very least maximize your potential as opposed to assuming that you have no control because then you're you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot and you don't necessarily have any potential for upward mobility or, or at least your, your potential for upward mobility is, is significantly reduced if you go under that assumption because then your behavior is going to reflect that then the outcomes are going to reflect that and it's going to be the sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. So as far as uh, you talked about in, extrinsic and intrinsic motivation and, uh, and burnout, well, you talked about a lot of things actually. And so can you give a little bit more of a breakdown of the intrinsic versus extrinsic motivational factors and maybe the pros and cons to each one? Yeah, for sure. So it's, it's not that extrinsic motivations are bad. So I guess I'll, I'll lead with that. Um, so extrinsic motivations are, you know, anything, uh, outside of the self. So we're talking about trophies or prize money or sponsorships or records. Um, uh, I, I mentioned sponsor deals, uh, beating other opponents, you know, kind of rank stuff like that is all extrinsic, uh, motivations as well. And then intrinsic motivations are all of your self-referenced reasons for wanting to do a sport because it's fun, because it's hard, because you get a workout from it or because you have a sense of self mastery or, you know, you just like barbells and, and lifting barbells. Um, these kind of, of things are, they, they burn longer, I would say, intrinsic motivation. So extrinsic motivations burn hotter and quicker. Um, mm -hmm. So there's, there's some blend of these that most athletes have. And, and the higher up in level you go, the more opportunities for extrinsic motivations exist. Um, but the more athletes rely on extrinsic motivations, the more they engage in uh, behaviors like perfectionism or... Um, just kind of really overreaching their abilities or their ability to train or things like that. And training starts to take on this character of, of being less for yourself and, and the reasons that you first started doing it. So again, it's not to say that it's bad. There's some blend, but I think that that core of intrinsic motivation um, should be there. So just to clarify what you mean by uh, there's more opportunities, the, the higher up you get in terms of uh, athletic ability, there's more opportunities for extrinsic motivations to come in. Um, you're talking about more sponsorships. You're talking about more of those, you know, the Instagram followers, um, all of that sort of stuff. And then mm -hmm. potentially even like just on game day, right? Like, Hey, this is the world championships. This means more. So would, um, I, I know that sometimes people will use that like an intrinsic motivational factor. So something like, uh, I know Boroshiko in, in one of his interviews was talking about how, you know, he doesn't always do this, but sometimes if there's a really important point in a competition, he'll play on, a, on an athlete's sense of nationalism. He'll be like, hey, are you a proud Russian man? Like, are you going to win this competition for your country? And like, he goes into that, right? Um, yeah. And actually, I don't know if that would be extrinsic or intrinsic. I, I think that might be like a little bit of a combination of both. But uh, yeah, it, it almost seems to me that utilizing extrinsic motivational factors might be a good potential strategy in an acute sense like that, where mm -hmm. you've got to lift on the bar or you got a number on the bar and you just got to go out there and, and take everything, every advantage that you have. Whereas something that's going to persist and last a very long time comes from more the intrinsic side of things, because realistically, like, unless you're Larry wheels who 
probably deadlifted 700 pounds, like as a six month old baby, you know, it's going to take you a good 10 years to, to get super strong, you know, and then probably another five to 10 years on top of that to be one of the best in the world. Right. If, if that's something that you have. And Mm -hmm. I mean, it's easy to say 10 years, but then 10 years is a long time, especially when you've been doing a program for two months and you're like, why am I not so strong? Like what's been going on? I've been so dedicated, you know? Um, Right. (laughs) It's uh, like, fuck, I, I go through that sometimes myself and then I have to like smack myself in the face and be like, you're an idiot. Come on, man. Um, yeah. So, so I want to hear what you think about burnout because that's something a lot of athletes go through, especially when, you know, you've been competing for 10 plus years, you've been training really hard and that's, you know, especially if that's like a really, really big part of your life. And I mean, you're someone who you compete as a powerlifting athlete, you are a strength coach. And I mean, I'm, I'm, I would assume you probably coach some other athletes as well, but it seems that that part of your life is very much encapsulates a very, very big part of your, your entire life, right? Like the amount of research you're doing, the amount of time and effort you spend on your diet, your nutrition, your sleep, your recovery, your mindset. Um, and then just even with your business, it all seems to revolve around fitness, performance, things like that. So how do you avoid burnout? And actually, I guess before you answer that, have you ever experienced burnout and what was that like? Yeah, I went through a period of uh, a pretty high amount of burnout. And, you know, I've gone through periods of being pretty close to saying, you know, screw all this stuff. Like, I just want training to be fun again. And like that, that kind of kept coming back. Like, this is not fun. I want training to be fun again. And, um, you know, I really kind of had to take a step back and just reevaluate what was different. What was I doing? And how do I get back to this thing that used to be you know, amazing and feel really good. Like, how do I get back to that place? Um, and this relates a little bit to motivation, you know, like being burnt out essentially means that some aspect of motivation is, is decreased or changed in some pretty significant way. Um, so, you know, the, the piece about intrinsic motivation, like there are, you know, three or four competitions per year and there are, um, you know, if, if you're competing for 10 years or something like that, that's, you know, quite a few opportunities to compete, but the day to day is just training and you've got to love the training. If you're going to do this for a lot of time and, and like the training for its own sake. So that goes back to that intrinsic motivation piece. But uh, by the research, there are kind of three dimensions of sport burnout. Um, one is physical or emotional exhaustion. So uh, just, like actually being both physically and emotionally tired of doing your sport. Uh, another one is reduced accomplishments. So you are, you're not performing as well as you did before, or you're not competing as well as you did before, you know? So if you, if you love lifting, but you're just not making progress or you're making progress in training, but it's just not happening on the platform, there's only a certain amount of time you can do all that before it really starts to drag on you. And, you know, something's got to change. And the last one is sport devaluation. So the the degree to which you like your sport compared to other alternatives out there, you know, other uses of your time, powerlifting takes a lot of time and there's a lot of other things you could be doing with that time, you know, so it has to be worth your time to be doing it. So devaluing your sport could be, you know, changes to your federation, changes to coaches, changes to teammates or, or training environments or, or anything that, might reduce your sense of, of falling in love and, and falling in love with your sport. And there's this whole background of other things, you know, like maybe excessive training or, you know, excessive um, school and work demands, 
maybe you're in some stressful social relationships with your um, your significant other or your your family, um, lack of recovery, or even like early success. If you're one of those athletes who like just crushed it at age 18 or something like that. Um, it's going to be really, really hard to get back to that same feeling. Um, and that feeling is, uh, it's tough to replace, you know, so that can certainly have an effect on athletes, um, background things like, uh, perfectionism, uh, or, uh, kind of anxiety or low social support. Like if you don't have a lot of friends and family who really care about or talk about you wanting to succeed, um, if you don't have coping skills, like deal with stress, that can be one factor or, or motivation as I talked about before as well. And so how important is that team environment then? Like your, your social network, um, whether it's family or, or anything like that, but specifically, I guess, uh, the actual team that you're training with, if you do have training partners versus training on your own, um, how do you think that differentiates, you know, an athlete's ability to remain focused and stay positive about their training? I think that athletes need a certain core amount of people who believe in their success and that kind of help them with some of the small things, you know, like the grocery shopping or getting through difficult training sessions or, you know, spotting or like helping them show up when, you know, you just don't want to get out of bed on that Saturday session or like, you know, those kind of small things that, that stretch out over years you need some core group of people who help you get through that kind of stuff. And, and athletes across the spectrum have this core group. And, you know, like you might have people who follow you on social media, but they're not part of this, this core group. You need some people who help you succeed. And, you know, powerlifting isn't like a team sport, but in the same sense, it requires some level of teamwork of, of people who believe in, in the outcome. And maybe that's family, maybe it's a few lifting buddies or something like that, but but that extended team is really, really important. Totally. Yeah. I mean, so I was someone who trained by myself for, well, pretty much always, uh, actually, even when I was a fighter, um, I would train myself and then I would just go and spar the athletes. And then when I was a powerlifter, same thing. And I'd seen the last like year, I actually started lifting with uh, one of my friends and he's got a powerlifting team. So I would just join them. And the level of difference it makes is like not even comparable, you know, and <laughs> I, I, I was always trying to tell myself like, oh, you know, well, if I can't do it on my own, then like that just means I'm mentally weak, right? <laughs> and now that, now that I have that, uh, that comparison, I'm just like, you're such an idiot. Why, why didn't you do this the whole time? Because it, yeah. it makes such a big difference, especially like you were saying on those really hard workouts, because hard training is smart training, you know, and, and mm -hmm. if you're really in there pushing it, especially the better you get more and more of your sessions are going to be very, very hard. Even if you're not necessarily lifting high weight, it's going to be hard for various reasons. Right. And, and so having that team to, to be there to push you and also just even correct your technique on certain things that maybe you think that you're doing, but you're not necessarily executing correctly. So in your experience, then how did you actually overcome uh, burnout when when that was something that you were kind of going through like what were the what were the key factors that helped you get out of that place and get back to loving the sport loving competition loving just the training and the whole process so the the piece for me was i think one of the things that we first started talking about today was um, a piece about comparison and for me it was about focusing too much on what other athletes were doing and like anytime 
someone who was like even a similar body weight to me, like 93s, 120s, 105s, almost didn't matter. Like I would see a high performance and think that I either was declining or would never be as good or just like this cascade of negative thoughts on myself. And like, it was just kind of really defeating no, no matter what my own training looked like, you know, like, especially because training is cyclical and you go through periods where training is high rep and, and low intensity and then it's hard. But if you're in that high rep and low intensity and you see other people throwing up big lifts, like you don't really have like this opportunity to respond or you're, you're referencing it to what you're doing in the moment. You know what I mean? And I'm like, Oh, well, I'm just doing this for sets of seven or something like that. And all these things are almost subconscious and, and they're maddening. So I had to bring the focus back on myself in, in a big way. So I stopped following a lot of my competition uh, on social media. Just, you know, just the realization that you can always turn on or turn off that filter. Like you don't have to follow anyone on social media. And I think we sometimes forget that. Like, look, you've got control over this dude. So, so decide who you want to follow and why, and uh, you know, just make the most of it. So that was, that was one thing that really helped to just kind of not seeing this stuff on a regular basis. And then just like not focusing on, competitions themselves and focusing on the the pieces of the training process that I really liked you know like what does it feel to deadlift what does it feel like to listen to my favorite song while I'm benching you know like those kind of things are the reasons why I love doing the sport like the challenge and like I just kind of had to get back to that and uh it wasn't a quick process but it made a world of difference yeah no it's definitely a tough process to to get to. And I, I think that comes back to the earlier point that you made, which was finding all those little wins, because like you were saying, you know, maybe you're, maybe you're in like a, an accumulation phase or a high volume phase where you don't have the opportunity to lift very heavy. You know, how are you going to be able to rate or, or evaluate whether or not you're making progress if you don't have the opportunity to hit a new one RM or, you know, three RM or something like that. And, you know, maybe it's a technical PR, maybe it's, you know, you lifted a weight that you already lifted in the last block but it moved way faster, you know, and, and looking for those little wins. Like I'm of the belief that you should PR every single training session, you know? Mm. And, and when I say PR, you know, I'll quantify that, not necessarily obviously like a one RM, but you know, yeah. maybe a rep PR you hit, or maybe you just executed something with better technique or with more speed, or, you know, the lift just felt a lot smoother, a lot cleaner. You had a faster lockout if you're pulling sumo, right? Um, all these little things. And then like you were saying earlier as well, if you have this really long history of just constantly killing it and you put a lot of value into that process and all those tiny little details, then it does give you a lot of confidence when you do get to those heavy weights as well. And, and that's something that's definitely, it, it's, it's funny because you know, you're someone who's won multiple national titles. You've got a world title. Um, you're a very experienced coach. A lot of people know about you and look up to you. And then at the same time, you know, you're still fallible. Like it took you a long time, like you were saying, to, to get out of that hole that, that you fell into, which was essentially just like looking at other people in comparison. Um, and I think that sometimes not a lot of people like to admit where they're at in, in that sense. You know, it's like, oh, well, like I'm sure the best of the best, you know, are perfect and don't have any issues. And this is just a me thing. And they tend to like catastrophize things. But at the same time, like, you know, people at the bottom or people at the top, like we're all human. We all experience things to, to some order of magnitude. Um, and so I think that's a really important point that, that you made. 
Yeah, um, it just really goes back to this idea that everyone will face challenges. You know, absolutely everyone will face challenges. Um, the the athletes high in mental toughness just cope with those challenges quicker and more efficiently. And it, yeah, and that's something that's really an undervalued point actually is the speed of turnover. So there's this guy that I follow who nothing to do with, with uh, lifting. He's uh, a business guy. His name's Grant Cardone. Um, but I've been, I've worked with his crew for a while before and uh, I've been listening to his stuff. And so he's really big on real estate. And he's one of these like self-made guys where he was like a drug addict. And now he's turned himself into this, like, you know, he manages multi-billion dollar properties and things like that. So he's very successful. And one mm. of the things that he, he's so adamant about is he's like, He's like, speed is everything. If you can make decisions really, really rapidly, you're going to be so successful because, you know, while one person might dwell on something for a week or a month, you've taken 30 minutes and made a critical decision in that amount of time. And you're going to make a lot of mistakes up front, but then at the same time, you're going to teach yourself to always be going into that level of discomfort and make decisions and just be okay with the result. And I think that's something that's highly applicable to, you know, this situation. Let's say you get injured well, I got to make a really important decision fast on the direction of my lifting career or my competitive, you know, the remainder of my competitive year, my rehab, you know, you got to make a lot of different decisions. And if you have too long where you're just sitting there dwelling on it, it can really, you know, ruin your headspace. Whereas if you're like, okay, I'm in a shitty situation, but what can I do? What do I have control over? And and I guess that comes back to that, you know, STD or not STD, <laughs> SDT, right? Self-determination <laughs> theory. <laughs> yeah. Coming back to self-determination theory where you have that level of autonomy and competence over your situation. You say, Hey, you know what? I, maybe I have control over less, but I do have control over something. So I'm going to maximize potential benefits that I can get out of what little I have control over. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's it's absolutely right. It, it's really crazy too, because this is something like I was thinking about this the other day, actually. And like, if you think about how much of our success is just predicated on pure chance, like the fact that, you know, so I was born in, in Netherlands, right. But I wasn't born in, in Africa or maybe like certain parts of the world where it's like way more dangerous and there's way less opportunity. Um, I was yeah. able to immigrate to Canada. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a big, tall dude, you know, and, and I have really great potential for building muscle and I've got all these different things and all of those have nothing to do with me or my hard work or really anything. And then, you know, different successes in business or training is, is completely random in a lot of cases, but we try and attribute it to, to how much, you know, effort we put into it. And, and it's like effort definitely does matter. But if you look at how little we actually have control over but at the same time, how much that level of control can actually translate into outcomes in the future. It's pretty insane. I've seen in your training sometimes you did some couple of really interesting things where you're putting garbage bags over the weights. And I guess to, well, I'll, I'll let you, I guess, kind of share why you were doing that and some of the strategies behind that. Um, can you talk a little bit about what got you involved in that? And what's that yeah, so that I went to, um... I went to this event called the European Powerlifting Conference, which is awesome. Actually, it was supposed to be last weekend. Again, another victim of, of uh, COVID rescheduling. Um, but there was a sports psychologist named Hugh Gilmore um, who presented on uh, kind of a, a range of things. But one of them was some strategies that he uses to reduce uh, anxiety and, and 
uh, practice the unknown uh, with athletes. So with athletes permission, they would do what, what he called pressure training, which, you know, basically you go in the gym, this is for um, British, British weightlifting team, I think. And they would have the weights covered and they would just kind of have to go in there and lift the weight. And the idea was, well, if you don't know what's on the bar, you're going to put in your best effort possible. And, and, you know, you'll end up with a better outcome if you put in your best effort possible. So it's kind of just like, uh, look, we might have to make a last minute change in competition. You're going to have to be able to reframe very quickly and go out and, and just attempt this with everything you've got. And uh, this also helps kind of with athletes who might be stuck around a specific number or feel like a certain level of anxiety around a specific number. So I was like, oh, that's cool. I've never seen that before. Let me try this for, for my own training. And I have a certain level of anxiety or at the time did around 600 pounds for a squat. Anything that looked like either six plates in pound plates or five reds kind of right in that range. Mm-hmm. Like I would just kind of lose my shit and not be able to lift in the way that I should be lifting. And, um, you know, it's, 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 it's that disconnect between physiological capability and mental preparation. So we tried this, this tactic where one of my training partners, my girlfriend would load the bar. I would turn around, you know, while they're doing this, they would cover it with trash bags and I would go in and lift the weight. And before the session, I would say, look, this is my RPE target today. I'm doing triples up to, you know, seven and a half RPE. I just trust you guys fully to, uh, to, to do that. And so basically from my last warm up up through kind of my ramping sets to find that target RPE, we would just let them, let them put the weight on. And yeah, it really helped. It really did. You know, it's not like I was, you know, setting crazy PRs or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the weights were consistently about 20 pounds heavier than I thought they were uh, on my back. And that's kind of surprising. That's, that's a lot, especially once you get up to that, uh, that level of weight on the bar, right? Every, every pound is going to make a much more dramatic difference. Yeah. So it was, it was really useful in just kind of overcoming this aversion to, to loads around 600 pounds. And um, I just kind of always keep that in my back pocket now as, as something to bring up to athletes who might be going through something similar. Mm -hmm. Like it it looks goofy as hell, but like if you're in a gym with people (laughs) you trust, but you know, it's like, sure, absolutely. That's awesome. Yeah, I can't say I've tried that strategy, but it was it was always something that was really interesting to watch. Like I remember seeing videos on Instagram and I was like, man, that is that's tough. That's tough going into a lift not knowing what it is. But I guess it's kind of part of the point, right? Is to is to be like, look, it doesn't matter. This is just, you know, let's see what you're actually capable of. Um mm-hmm. and actually there was a really interesting paper that came out recently. Oh my god, I can't remember who it was by. But essentially, they looked at uh, they looked at maximum uh, voluntary contraction force of of the musculature, and I oh man, I wish I remembered what it was. Essentially, what they found was that uh, you know people's mindsets would would quit before their their body, at, like before their physiology did, right? So mm. uh, the, I think it was something along the lines of they did like a, a maximum contraction, maximum voluntary contraction. They measured the the force output. And then they got them to like a VO2 max test. And then they did the max strength again. Mm-hmm. Now, now it was something like that. So don't quote me on it. And uh, they found that the people who reached their, their VO2 max or something like that, or the people who were like, oh man, I can't do this. I'm, I'm quitting the VO2 max. Their strength output after the test was still really high. 
right? Which, Interesting. Which is, which is like, it, it's, you know, it's not going to be the case. And so it was something about like, they, they gave up mentally and that's what made them, you know, their body give out. Uh, but yeah, I'll have to read that again. I wish I had more, more information on that, man, because it's very similar to, to kind of what you're talking about, right? Um, yeah. Speaking of the relevance, my coach shared one paper with me that, that tested something essentially the same concept and show there really wasn't any difference between groups. So don't, don't go out there and start covering all your, your loads with trash bags. <laughs> it's really just, it's like a, it's a tool to get around specific load anxieties rather than like, let's just train this way and, and we'll all make crazy gains. When you were, when you were lifting at worlds for jockeying for position at, at uh, what, what year was that? Was it 2018? Yeah. 2018. So when you were in that, uh, in the back there and you, did you at, at know at all that you were uh, fighting for that first place position? No, no, I didn't. I, um, I made my, my um, second deadlift and mm-hmm. I went out there and, you know, we just put a weight on that we thought I would make to just, you know, make it as hard for Christoph Weirbicki to beat me as possible. Right. And I missed. Uh, and I thought, well, you know, that's, that's it. You know, maybe, maybe I'm in like the top three or, or something like that, but I'm certainly not in gold. So we're watching from the side and Bryce Crotchet goes up and then um, Christoph goes up and uh, both of those athletes miss. And I yeah. still thought like, uh, you know, good, good competition. Like this is an amazing world, but the miss meant that my total was still higher than him and I ended up winning. And like, I was just like, what the hell, you know, like this. And I learned from that experience. Like you never know what's going to happen based on training. And the more times I learned that lesson, the easier it is to just kind of be a little bit more confident in my own abilities. Like you can look at someone's training, they can put up insane numbers in training and and yet anything can happen the day of competition. And I always have to remind myself of that. Like you just can't predict what's going to happen. Having, having that uh, removal of, of the weight. And, and so it doesn't really get into your head and cause anxiety. Um, the other day, I think it was Friday. So, so this would have been, you know, two, three days ago. Uh, I went to, to train with one of my athletes like in person. So she's an online client of mine, but I happen to be in the same city as her. And so, uh, I went and we did like a little workout. And so she's, she's tiny. She's like 120 pounds, 118 pounds, something like that. And uh, I had her doing a six RM, right. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was like, okay, yeah, I'm going to aim to do 250 for my six RM. And I was like, mm, no, nah, that's too low. You need to go way higher. She's like, oh my God, I don't know if I can do that, but okay. You know, like if you believe in me, maybe I'll go 275. And I was like, no, 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 no. Like you're, you're doing nothing less than 300. Right. And the thing is, like, I wasn't 100 percent sure that she could do it, but I wanted I wanted her to push to that level, you know, just to see, like, hey, here's what you're actually capable of. I was confident that she could, you know, come pretty close, but I didn't know if she could hit all of them. And so we're at the gym and we're wearing up. She's scared. And I was like, look, I don't care if you're scared. You're doing this. So it's happening. So, you know, choose choose whether or not you want to crush it or if it's going to crush you you know, and then she went in there and we're all like, just yelling at her. I'm like, come on, you can do this. And she ended up crushing out seven reps um, with 300 pounds. Damn. And, uh, yeah, yeah. And like, she comes back and she's like, oh my God, like, 
I can't believe I just did that. Like I never in a million years thought that I'd be able to do that. And yeah. it's just, it's, it's so shocking sometimes how we put these limitations on ourselves as, as a lifter, you know, and um, one of the things, I guess, one of the lead-ins is I've had conversations with her before as well about, you know, imposter syndrome and she'll be like, oh, well, I made the lift, but I don't know. I'm not that, I'm not that good. Or like, you know, mm-hmm, I haven't been able mm-hmm. to do it since, or you know what I mean? And there, there's always a reason or a justification for why it's not as, yeah. as amazing as it really is. And then if something bad happens, it's always blown up out of proportion. Have you yeah. experienced um, imposter syndrome and, and you know, can you just kind of give a little bit about uh, your own experience with that? Yeah. Yeah. I think what your lifter was experiencing is, is something called defensive pessimism, which is like, uh, you kind of hedge your bets before you go through something so that if anything bad happens, like you called your shot before and like, Oh, see, it's, it's because, you know, it was raining outside or like, oh, I didn't sleep well last night or like, you know, all those, all those kind of things. Um, and it has a lot to do with like locus of control. Like how much control do you think you have? But yeah, back to that point, like you tell athletes like train hard, you know, like training hard is, is what it takes. And I call those moments that your athlete went through like a recalibrating moment. And I, yeah. I have gone through a few of those in my life too, where, you know, I had some buddies load up uh, a leg press and like, they just took me through like this gauntlet of a leg press with drop sets upon drop sets upon drop sets. And like, I, I just realized like, oh shit, I have way more in me than I've been putting forth. And like now my scale of effort and what it takes to succeed has been recalibrated. And I know that now I have more in the tank and I'm capable of applying myself to that higher degree. And like, there's going to be a lot of those moments that, that happen in an athlete's career. And I think this idea of train hard, like, no, you probably don't know how hard you can actually train. And like, that's confirmed by research too. You know, say they have athletes go up to um, an AMRAP, uh, you know, where they, where they stop when they have one rep left in the tank and then they have them continue to go past that. In a lot of cases, somewhere between, you know, five and 16 more reps after that. And so, you know, we're just capable of a lot more than, than we think a lot of the time. Yeah, I had, I had an experience with that. Uh, so <clears throat> right now I'm, I'm in Calgary and when I, I started training at the Strength Edge, which is uh, Bryce Krawchuk's gym. Oh, yeah, you're, remember, you're right there with Big Bryce. Yeah, so I remember when I first, the first day that I walked into that gym, I was relatively new to powerlifting. And I didn't know the difference between equipped lifting and unequipped. I just was like, oh, he's squatting. So I walk yeah. in and literally the squat rack is facing me. And he just happens to be unracking 805. as like right as I walk in and I like seeing that much weight on the bar like I don't think people if you've never seen someone in person lift that much weight it is a completely different experience than watching it on YouTube like yeah you you see that much weight and it's almost like your brain can't register it you're like what the fuck and so anyways like I just go to the side and I see him smoke it and I was like oh my god and I'd been plateaued for I think about like eight months or seven months yeah. or something like that. And within two months I had a 40 pound squat PR. I had like a 50 pound deadlift PR and like a 40 pound bench <laughs> PR within, within, yeah, seriously, like two months. And it was like, is that a coincidence? Hell no. Like right. I had never trained so hard in my life. Cause I was like, man, this guy's so much further ahead of me. And it's sometimes you just need, like you were saying that, that reset, that's such a great uh, term for it because that's exactly what it is. 
kind of redefining your boundaries and I guess just even being more open to uh to exploring them and seeing what they are because yes yeah, sometimes you don't even notice that you can kind of become not complacent but I guess somewhat complacent in your training or you think you're maybe putting forth a certain amount of effort that's not exactly there so and I, I guess kind of coming back to you know what we were talking about earlier about training partners I think that's one of the massive benefits of training partners is they keep you honest you know like if you yeah. do something and they don't believe that it's your it's your best they'll be like bitch get back onto the bar you're doing two more reps you know or something yeah. like that so if there's any like actual transfer between like some of the psychology stuff and like the actual physiology of of getting stronger it's in putting more weight on the bar you know and and athletes kind of teammates telling you like oh well you know you you should go up or something like that Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I, I think those moments are, are really important to have those people around you. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, yeah, there there are so many instances where, like, I can think of anyways where I wouldn't have hit a lift or I wouldn't have done something had someone else not got on my case and been like, "Dude, go for it!" Like, I remember when I hit my first six hundred pound squat. Um, that was a really big number for me, and I was freaking scared. And so I jumped. I my biggest squat prior to that was 550, right? So mm. like I hit 601. Um, and so it was a 51 pound PR. For you me. went from 550 to one, jeez. But I was like, I was nervous, man. Like I did not know if I could do it. And I remember I had a couple of guys there and they were just like, you know, I tend to not do so well with people being like, oh, good job. You know, I like people getting in my face sometimes. And so I've got a couple of friends who, who really do a great job of that. And, um, yeah, he just like, my one buddy just got in my face. He's like, he's like, this is it. You know, like, are you going to do this? Or are you going to bitch out? He's like, let's see it. Show me what you're made of. And I was like, all right, I guess I got to do it. And I went under <laughs> there and smoked it. And I was just like, oh my God. Like, cause the whole time I'm going down and literally like what I'm thinking to myself is just good luck. You know, let's see what happens. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and I hit it and I was so shocked. I was just like, oh my God. Um, but yeah, I, I never would have done that had I not had him there spotting me and, and a couple other people spotting me because one, I wouldn't have wanted to do that weight on my own because it's just dangerous. And then two, just having them there yelling at me as I'm pushing up, I was like, oh no, I'm getting pinned. And then I was like, wait, it's still moving. Oh my God. I, I, I did this. <laughs> yeah, honestly, like, I, I think that was super interesting. All the stuff you covered, is, I, I've got a lot of notes here of stuff that I really want to look into as well. Uh, just even from like Hugh Gilmore and, and defensive pessimism and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, thanks so much for joining us. I learned a lot. I know the listeners learned a lot and there's tons of great takeaways for, you know, just how to prepare yourself psychologically and get the most out of your training. Um, Daniel, thanks so much for having me on, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. So before we end off here, where can the listeners find you? Like, do you have any projects or are you launching anything uh, that, that uh, you know, listeners can know about? Me- we are working on a lower cost coaching option that we think is really going to help a lot of people who might be using like uh, either crappy templates or things that aren't tailored to them, find something that's really kind of suited to them and, and changes over time. Um, what else? We are hosting this really big charity event and I actually I'll spend the rest of the time talking about that rather than highlighting, you know, boring stuff about coaching. Um, we are bringing a lot of USA uh, athletes together in Fort Collins, Colorado, where I live. And we're going to be hosting this online charity event where we, um, we do big lifts and this whole thing is going to be streamed on Twitch. 
and we'll have kind of roundtable conversations with top level coaches and you can tune in for free and all of the proceeds for donations go toward mental health awareness and uh, racial equity. So um, that's happening in mid-September, September 17th through the 20th. And uh, you can follow Lift Together for the number four charity on Instagram. That's awesome, man. That's really cool. How did you guys come about uh, deciding to put that together? Um, I enjoy video games and there's like a few <laughs> video game charity events that happen a few times a year. And I thought, damn, powerlifting is missing that. It'd be really cool to do something like this for powerlifting. So um, I got together a few friends, uh, my friend Ellis McLean, awesome lifter, Natalie Hansen's helping out, Eric Bodhorn's helping out and, and all these volunteers. Uh, we've got just a star studded roster of people coming out and uh, we'll do some big stuff. That's great, man. I think that's going to be super exciting. I'm definitely going to check it out. So anyone who wants to find out a little bit more about you, um, we're going to be including all the links in the show notes, guys. You can definitely check them out. But are you active on any social media platforms? Do you have a website that you primarily do most of your work out of? Uh, yep. So we offer coaching on thestrengthathlete.com um, for either uh, short-term coaching or long-term coaching as well. And uh, I post a lot of training thoughts and my own training on Instagram at Bryce underscore TSA. Awesome. Okay. So again, guys, all that stuff's going to be linked up in the show notes. Definitely go check him out. Give him a follow. Um, he's got really great stuff. So Bryce, thanks so much for joining us again, man. Thank you so much. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode and took a lot from it that you can apply to your own situation to see much better results. I just have one quick personal favor to ask of you please make sure you subscribe and leave me a five-star rating on whatever podcast platform you're using. When you do this, it helps me get better at producing content and increases my exposure so I can continue putting out high-quality information for you guys. Next, I want to extend a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram at Stacked Strength. I'll help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to connect with me directly, so make sure you head on over and jump into my DMs. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.